school the way history was taught to me, uh, unfortunately. It was just a bunch of boring names and dates that, <laughs> that didn't seem to have anything to do with the world that I was living in then. So I, uh, I go to college, and I'm uh, studying aeronautical engineering. So, and um, at Western Michigan University at the time, the engineering curriculum had no room at all for history courses, even freshman history courses. So if I just studied engineering, I would have had no exposure to, uh, to history at the university level. But I also had an ROTC scholarship, and the Army required uh, me to have a military science minor in addition to engineering. And that, in addition to classes on tactics and on uh, military leadership, you also had to take uh, you know, a class in psychology, you had to take uh, foreign language classes, and I had to take a history class. And so it was because of that Army ROTC scholarship that I took my first history class. And that history class turned out to be exactly the opposite from what I had experienced in high school. The professor was not only knowledgeable, but really enthusiastic. And he also connected the history that we were learning uh, to current events in a way that really made sense to me. So, uh, you know, that's where my first exposure to history was. And by this time, I'd been studying engineering for a couple of years. And I'd come to realize, like more than a few folks who start out in one field and change majors, that I just wasn't really the, the right person for engineering or engineering wasn't right for me. But it wasn't until I took that first history class that I realized, uh, started to realize my passion for, uh, for, for the field of history. Yeah. Oh, that's a great answer. A cool path to take, too. Cool. So next, what motivated you to focus on aviation history in particular? Well, there's another um, sort of uh, indirect story. You would think that because I had been studying aeronautical engineering and because I was a private pilot, I learned to fly uh, in the summer between graduating high school and uh, starting college. You'd think that that would be a natural choice for me. Mm -hmm. But when I started graduate school, I did not actually think I was going to study aviation history. Uh -huh. And that's because at the time, the aviation history that I had read was what I would call coffee table book style oh, history. Yeah, yeah. You know, lots of great pictures, some great stories, but no real deep probing questions mm, yeah. that help us understand the world in which we live. Hmm. And so it wasn't until that first semester at grad school when I, I read a book um, uh, that was uh, in assigned in one of our classes. It was actually an extra reading, and I didn't pick it out to read myself, but one of my fellow uh, uh, classmates said, Alan, you're a pilot. Um, <laughs> you really need to read this book. So it was actually over winter break that I read this book. Oh. Um, I mean, what everybody does during winter break, right? Yeah, yeah. Read another book. <laughs> but the book was uh, uh, called The Winged Gospel by Joseph Korn. And it turns out, um, I didn't know it at the time, but he had written this book in the early 80s, and he really was the individual responsible for creating or founding the field of the social and cultural history of aviation. Mm. And he was asking questions that I found interesting, and he was asking them about aviation in a way that I just never thought you could ask those oh, questions. Yeah. So that's how I got interested in, in uh, aviation history. Again, um, sort of by accident. Oh, cool. All right, next, would you say that your experience as a private pilot influences your work? If so, how? Yeah, that's uh, a really good question. 
it does influence my work. Um, and on, on the one hand, uh, I don't want to be seen as that pilot who writes history uh, because uh, sometimes uh, scholars look at that and say, well, that's, that's somebody writing from inside experience or they're not really mm -hmm. asking the, the deep and, and tough questions. But at the same time, um, being a pilot gave me some insight into the, the technical aspects of flying um, that also, it turns out, have non-technical factors involved. It led me to, uh, I think, be able to ask some questions about flying, about flight instruction, about aircraft design that I wouldn't have necessarily been able to do if I didn't have some hands-on experience with aviation as well as being a historian. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool combination and neat that you got to bring that perspective in with you to the field of history. Cool. Okay, so how has your work as a civilian historian for the U.S. Air Force, how is that similar or different to the work that you do now? Well, in a lot of ways it's different. Um, mm. the, the reason that the Air Force and all branches of the military have historians, one reason is to record uh, the history of that military branch mm. as it's happening. Because if somebody's not capturing those documents and sort of writing the history of events of the past year, not just big world events or military actions, but also policy meetings and decisions uh, and, and procurement de decisions, things like that. Uh, if somebody's not capturing those documents, uh, you know, often that information just ends up uh, getting shredded. Mm. And so um, part of what we were doing was documenting history really almost as it was happening. Mm. But uh, another thing we were doing was... Um, answering questions about um, uh, Air Force programs that had happened 10, 15, 30, 50 years ago, answering these questions mm -hmm. for members of Congress and Air Force leadership in support of their current decision-making processes. Oh. So it's very much a uh, – my experience was it was, it was very much a, a job related to sort of the practical aspects of history rather yeah. than – um, uh, uh, sitting around thinking about um, uh, deeper social and cultural issues. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Were there any memorable lessons that you learned as a civilian historian for the U.S. Air Force or that has contributed to your work here at Auburn? Well, one thing uh, that working as a, as a historian for the Air Force uh, th this will sound a little obvious, right? But I had to learn a lot about Air Force history, <laughs> which which was actually not something I'd learned that much about as a graduate student. I was trained really as a social and cultural historian of technology. It happened that my research um, was uh, on aviation, but I was focusing on civilian aviation in my research. And I never took a class in graduate school on aviation history. There were no professors of aviation history at the University of Delaware. Hmm. So all of the aviation history expertise um, on my dissertation committee came from outside of Delaware. Oh. I was lucky enough to have uh, Joseph Korn from Stanford University serve on my dissertation committee and also uh, 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 Deborah Douglas, who's at the MIT Museum, but who happens to be an expert in women in aviation. But I had not had any formal training as an aviation historian besides what I did in my own research. Hmm. And so working for the Air Force for a couple of years, I really had a 
a crash course in in um, military aviation history and Air Force history, and uh, that turned out uh, to serve me well when I got to Auburn because. Uh, this really broadened my horizons and my knowledge base uh, for what I could teach. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Okay, so were there any memorable lessons that you learned as a civilian historian for the U.S. Air Force that has contributed to your work here at Auburn? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing was learning about military history, but also, um, uh, I guess, I, I also got... Uh, some good experience doing oral history interviews and just sort of mm. expanded my practical nuts and bolts experience as a working historian, working with a variety of different kinds of sources. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What is your favorite part of being in the field of history? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, to be honest, my favorite part is actually the teaching part. And... Um, it's great teaching history majors, but it's also really great teaching people who are not history majors because even when you're teaching, or especially when you're teaching uh, freshman level history, you know, the core courses, this is the last time that most people coming through Auburn University are going to have a college level history mm. course or any formal history course. So this is not to me about learning just names and dates, all that sort of boring approach to <laughs> lots of information that, that I did not like in high school. This is about understanding other societies, other parts of the world, other cultures, understanding broader themes uh, like non-technical factors uh, in, in history of technology, for instance, um, using historical case studies to tackle bigger topics. Um, so I guess what I'm, what I'm going with here where I'm going with this is that I like to think that um, that I'm having hopefully some influence on people's perspective, how they view the world, how they how they think about the world, and whether they agree with me or not isn't the question. It's the fact that that they are using critical thinking to assess the world, and this affects us as we move forward throughout our life, both in our professional workplaces, but also as private citizens as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Passing the torch forward as they enter, you know, whatever broader field. That's really cool. Okay, so what is your favorite part about being in the field of history? Mm. Well, uh, okay, so there's teaching and there's also uh, just the fact, I guess, what attracted me to history in the first place is that, you know, I study history to understand to better understand the world in which we live. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, for me, that's where history really matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, one last question before the break. Broadly speaking, how does aviation history relate to power? That's a great question. You know, if, if you just ask anybody out on the street, probably uh, – most people would answer something along the line of military air power, right? The ability to defend a nation, to win wars if you do go to war, and to, in peacetime, you know, uh, to use the military uh, to sort of uh, enforce your will upon other nations. Mm. But when I think of power, I think of a different kind of power. Uh, I think of uh, uh, power 
uh, in terms of social, cultural, economic, and political power, mm -hmm. power that affects us as individuals and groups within society. So what's that got to do with aviation? Well, you know, there's the obvious answers of the ability to move around both the country and the world. But if you think about aviation as a career, and in my case, I look specifically at pilots, we're talking about a, a high-tech, um, high-prestige, highly-paid job. Mm -hmm. And this translates into uh, social and cultural status, and it translates into economic power. Mm -hmm. And these, in turn, even... Uh, translate into, um, uh, you know, access to political power. And one of the things to think about here is that traditionally social, cultural, economic, and political power, uh, ways that uh, society has traditionally defined who has access to these and who doesn't is based on who you are. Mm. And that includes uh, your gender, your race, and also your class background. And so looking at who has traditionally become pilots, who has been welcomed into the field, um, who has been not uh, allowed or later not welcomed, even once the, the formal barriers fall, I think mm -hmm. that provides a window into other STEM-related fields. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. We're going to take a break, but we'll see you after our two-minute ad break. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, uh, here live at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. Here, we're joined with Dr. Meyer, and we're, dis we're about to discuss his first book, Weekend Pilots, Technology, Masculinity, and Private Aviation in Post-War America, published by the John Hopkins University Press in 2015, exploring why aviation originated as and continues to be a male-dominated field. What inspired you to write Weekend Pilots? The, I guess the, the question behind Weekend Pilots... Um, started out uh, with uh, the question of why there are so few women pilots in the United States. Mm. And um, this started out as, as a research paper I, I was writing as a graduate student, and uh, I was writing about uh, women pilots in the 1960s, and somebody asked this question, well, what percentage of pilots are there? So I had to do a little bit of research mm -hmm. on that. And what I found surprised me, in, uh, in 1958, 3% of civilian pilots in the United States were women. Mm. Um, 20 years later, that's one generation, this had doubled to 6%. So even though 6% isn't a lot, doubling, you can say, well, that's a significant change. Mm -hmm. But then what really surprised me is uh, from uh, 1978 up to uh, four decades later, that percentage remained the same, oh, wow. plus or minus a half percent hmm. for four decades. And so that got me thinking, well, there's been a lot of changes since the 1960s. You know, um, mm -hmm. we had the, the uh, women's rights movement, the baby boom generation came of age. Uh, both of these events, uh, which are related to each other also, but they, they started changing ideas in American society about what was appropriate for women to do, what women should be allowed to do. In the early 1970s, we mm -hmm. see the first women airline pilots hired and the first women service members admitted into military flight training, first the Army and Navy, then the Air Force by the mid-1970s. And uh, by the early 1980s, we have uh, women astronauts flying in space. So 
all of these former structural barriers against women uh, pursuing career in aviation have started to fall, and yet the percentage of women pilots remains so low. Mm -hmm. So um, instead of looking for rules and regulations that were keeping women out, I started looking for uh, social or cultural reasons. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's what led me to, um, to, to explore the culture of private aviation. So interesting and really cool that your work has like been digging below the surface level and trying to find the more like bigger implications of the field and just society in general. So that's super interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you begin your book with an anecdote about a woman being thrown into a pool by her husband at the Aircraft Owens and Pilots Association, uh, AOPA's annual convention. Can you explain the significance of this story and why you chose to begin the book this way? Yeah, that, that incident happened in the early 1960s, and it was right after the AOPA had introduced a program to teach the wives of pilots, the wives of mm. private pilots, how to fly and take over in an emergency if their husband had a heart attack. Mm. And uh, these, these uh, women were being taught to fly not from the pilot seat, but from the co-pilot seat, from oh. the from the right-hand passenger seat, which is where they'd be sitting, presumably, hmm. when they're flying with their husband. And uh, if you look statistically, there was no reason for this program. The chances of this happening were minuscule. Something like two of these events happened nationwide per year where uh, a private pilot had a heart attack and was incapacitated. Hmm. But really, this program was uh, much greater than that. It had to do with addressing what was perceived as um, uh, women's and specifically the wives of these pilots, their fear of flying. Hmm. You know, as, as one uh, uh, woman uh, uh, described it, you know, when you get on an airline, you're, 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 there's, there's this gray-haired pilot in a sharp uniform up, up in, inside the, the, the uh, flight deck, you know, Clearly, he knows what he's doing. But mm -hmm. when it's your husband flying the plane, he's the same guy who can't find his car keys in the morning. <laughs> right, right. So, so the purpose of this course, it had a practical aspect to it, but it was really designed to demystify flying for wives of pilots, mm -hmm. not to turn them into pilots themselves. So mm -hmm. that's the background behind this. So at the year that this course debuts, uh, uh, the, the people involved are Jane and Ralph Nelson. And Ralph Nelson uh, was an executive with the AOPA, and he was the, the, the individual responsible for coming up with this program mm. and rolling it out. Jane, his wife, was not a pilot. So at the annual convention, which I believe was at, in Las Vegas that year, there's several thousand members there, this, this debut of, of the course. And uh, Ralph Nelson gets called out to the airport to see what's going on with the course, uh, sort of get an update from the instructors. And that's where, uh, as the story goes, he, see his, he sees his wife taking off um, uh, in an airplane. And she was not going through the course. She was actually taking off on a solo flight. So oh. she was actually learning to fly. Mm -hmm. And supposedly, this was the first time that he knew that she was actually taking flying lessons. Mm. And so... Um, so at that night at the banquet with several thousand members present around the swimming pool at the hotel mm -hmm. at this fancy banquet, uh, 
they announced uh, the the MC Master of Ceremonies announced that that uh, Ralph and Janie, as as they called her, would take a uh, post solo uh, promenade around the pool. Nah. Halfway around, uh, Ralph pushes his wife into the pool, hmm. and then she drags him in too. <laughs> so. Uh, and supposedly, because we only know what's written up in the articles afterwards, but supposedly mm-hmm. the crowd loves it. <laughs> and, uh, and But the, the greater significance of this is that um, this was really a, a pr- probably a carefully staged event that mm. was supposed to be funny, uh, but was also supposed to send a message or reinforce a message that, um, you know, Women can fly, mm. but their husbands are still in charge. Mm. So uh, what I had started out, when I started out looking at this program, I thought, oh, this is all about equal opportunity in the air. This mm-hmm. is happening right at the same time as the second wave feminist movement, the women's mm. rights, women's liberation movement. And not, not so much. This was mm. really about convincing women that their husband's hobby was actually okay and that they should join him in it because uh, – the, the worry was that if women, if the wives of pilots didn't like to fly, then they would be the ones who controlled the purse strings, mm. so to speak, and would ultimately force their husbands out of flying because it's such an expensive hobby. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Interesting. Why did you choose to focus your work on private aviation for this book? Yeah, so I chose private aviation because there's three different fields of aviation. There's private aviation, there's commercial aviation, including the airlines, and there's the military. And at this time, throughout most of the post-war period, um, up until the early 70s, uh, there were no women flying for the military. The Women's Air Force Service pilots had flown as private contractors for the U.S. government, um, ferrying military aircraft during World War II, but they weren't Uh, actual members of the military. And that program was disbanded in 1944. So there were no women pilots in the military up until the mid-1970s. The same thing is true with the airlines. The airlines simply refused to hire women pilots, Mm -hmm. no matter how qualified they were, up until the early 1970s. So uh, I, I could have looked at either of those fields of aviation. But what you're going to find there is just all men. Hmm. And even though women made up a small minority of pilots in private aviation, there were women there. And what I discovered pretty early on in my research was that you didn't really discover clues about the culture of flying until somebody comes along and challenges that culture. So because there are women in private aviation, this provided uh, uh, points of challenge or points of, mm-hmm. of, of friction, so to speak, where men are speaking out about, uh, well, she's a pretty good pilot for a woman, mm-hmm. and <laughs> worrying about what women showing up at the airport is going to do to their sort of male clubhouse mm-hmm. environment that they've created. But you also get uh, first-hand accounts from women pilots and their experiences and uh, what it's like to be a woman in this mostly male world. Hmm. Very interesting. And this is just a side question. So for private private aviation, is that just someone going in a plane and flying around for fun for themselves, or are they transporting anyone or anything? 
Right. So private aviation uh, is just think of your own private automobile, right? Okay. So, so you're not a taxi cab driver. You're mm-hmm. not a truck driver. You're not a bus driver. You're just using your – and you might be using it for your own business. Okay. If you're in business, in sales, something like that, or flying to a convention. But you're not charging somebody uh, to, to fly okay. a, as a passenger, and you're not flying cargo. Okay. Interesting, interesting. This is a awfully big question, but how did the Second War influence private aviation? World War II uh, had a had a huge impact on private flying. Yeah, and we can just we can start by just looking at the numbers. In 1940, before the U.S. enters the war, there are uh, only about 40,000 licensed pilots in the entire country. Ten years later, in 1950, the number is over 400,000. So in mm-hmm. 10 years. That's a growth of, what, 10 times, right? Wow, yeah. And uh, these are civilian pilots. Now, the military played a huge role in this, and it did so in three ways. One way is, uh, is uh, military flight training. Over 250,000 young men, all of the men, and the vast majority of them, except for 1,000 individuals, 1,000 young men who were trained at Tuskegee Army Airfield, mm. all the rest of those were young white men who were trained uh, to be military pilots. Mm -hmm. So that's about a quarter of a million new pilots trained. Then we also had the civilian pilot training program that started in 1939 uh, by Franklin D. Roosevelt. And it was started both as a boost to the civilian uh, aviation industry, but also to create a pool of trained pilots in case the U.S. did go to war. Mm. So that trained a couple of hundred thousand uh, uh, private pilots at government expense. And these were mostly uh, uh, young men. They were all college age, and uh, the vast majority were men. And then after the war started, the um, the program excluded women because to sign up for free, free flight training, the men had to sign a contract agreeing to join the military after oh. they finished college. And that constituted a, a contract that... Uh, that excluded women because mm. women were exempt from the draft. They could volunteer for the military, but you couldn't throw them in prison for, for signing a contract and then not showing up. Oh. So so, so that, that program also produced a couple hundred thousand uh, new pilots. And then after the war, uh, with the GI Bill of Rights, and we mostly think of that as helping returning veterans to buy homes and to go to college. But besides college, you could go to technical school, and technical school included learning to fly. So if you didn't want to use your GI Bill benefits to go to college, you could instead use those benefits to earn your pilot's license. Hmm. And so between these three programs, the civilian pilot training program, military flight training during the war, and the GI Bill after the war for uh, young service members, most of the men who uh, had not flown during the war, we end up with hundreds of thousands of new pilots uh, trained in, in the wartime and the, the five years immediately after the war. And what this does is, is it means that the vast majority of new pilots at this time are young white males, and they had just come out of the war. So they had this shared experience. They had grown up in the 1930s looking at barnstormers, looking at uh, air racers mm-hmm. and and uh, daring explorers uh, in aviation. So they had their, their own visions of what pilots were, and now you have this, this huge group of, of young men 
with these ideas of what a pilot should be, which also includes what a pilot shouldn't be. Mm. And they form the basis of private aviation for the next half century. Wow, wow. Okay, very cool. Okay, so one last question before our next break. So what do you hope people will take away from reading your book? Yeah, so from a big picture, um, yeah, I think it's the importance of non-technical factors oh. in something that we tend to think of in purely technical terms. Mm, yeah. The way that flight training, the way that uh, flight training is conducted can affect uh, who joins uh, the ranks of, of pilots and who doesn't. It's sort of a, a gatekeeper. Mm. Even even uh, technology, which technology uh, members of the aviation com uh, community accept and which technologies they reject can affect. Um, it both reflects their culture, in this case a highly masculine culture that that uh, uh, values um, uh, individual skill over, say, designed-in safety features in mm -hmm. some cases. Um, and uh, so, so non-technical factors can have an effect on a supposedly purely technical pursuit like flying, and that can serve as a gatekeeper to decide or help decide or screen out who's allowed in and who's not allowed in. And yeah. factors like this ultimately can have an effect on the demographics of of that activity. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Great points for sure. Yeah, I definitely say it like impacts the demographics like on a smaller level because for our listeners at home and I'm in Dr. Meyer's history of aviation class right now and the class is predominantly male. I'd say it's like close to like 70% men. Mm. There are very few women in the class and I think it's because like we associate private like aviation as a whole as a more masculine field because mm. my history classes in the past have definitely swing, swung more towards women so to like go into this class with uh, very few women and it was very disheartening to be like oh well now there's like almost no women in this field hmm. very interesting all right we're gonna go to an ad break but we'll see you right after hello and welcome back to it's all history to me here live at wingle 91.1 fm if you're just joining us, we're joined today by Dr. Meyer from the Auburn University History Department, and we're about to discuss his current project, a book entitled Flying, Flying While Black, which explores racial integration in commercial aviation from the civil rights era to the present. Can you go into a little bit more detail as to what this new book is about? Yeah, so this book is about, um, it, it, about why it, it, it's sort of related to the first book in a way, which asked why are there so few women pilots today? And in the process of writing that first book, I discovered what most people in aviation would probably be able to tell you, which is that there are also very few people of color uh, sitting in the mm -hmm. pilot's seat, yeah. and uh, both today but also historically. And so this book arose out of a question of, well, why are there so few black pilots? Mm -hmm. um, and... And so uh, I, I chose to, uh, to focus on commercial aviation this time because uh, that's a high-prestige, high-tech, highly-paid job. And again, I, I think that even though it's different in some ways, in other ways it is a case study that serves as sort of a window into what's going on in other STEM-related yeah. career fields. So what we learn in this uh, field can help us understand broader questions in society. Um, so what I do is I, I trace the history of uh, African Americans in aviation from before World War II, but my real focus is what happens 
uh, after the first black airline pilot is hired, which doesn't happen until 1963. Mm. And that requires a Supreme Court case to force Continental Airlines to, to hire a pilot who is fully qualified and who had applied for, for a job in 1958. And Continental didn't realize that he was black because he had left the question for race blank on his application form. He had not included the required photograph. So they looked at his Air Force flying record and said, this is exactly the kind of pilot we're looking for until he showed up at their headquarters in Colorado. Hmm. And then they were polite, but they didn't hire him. They went on to hire several white pilots who interviewed at the same time who were far less qualified than he was. Hmm. And this provided grounds for a racial discrimination lawsuit that eventually ended up, after years uh, of going through lower courts, in the U.S. Supreme Court, which quickly decided that um, Continental Airlines had indeed uh, discriminated based on the basis of race. And and so this individual, Marlon Green, becomes the first black pilot. So uh, that happens in 1963. And 15 years later, by 1978, uh, there are just over 100 black pilots in the industry. Well, that's in an industry with between 35,000 and 40,000 pilots. So this is something like 0.35%. About one-third percent of all airline pilots are African-American 15 years after the first black pilot is hired. And even today, you know, now we are, here it is, uh, I guess, uh, 60 years later, uh, after that 1963 Supreme Court decision. And we're still at uh, about 3% of all airline pilots in the United States are African-American. So uh, that's what the book is about. It's about the long, very slow process of integrating uh, the airline cockpit. And it's not just focused on the airlines. It also focuses on how uh, uh, systemic racism, the long-term effects of systemic racism, have had an effect on who even starts the pathway to becoming a pilot because it's a long, expensive, and difficult path. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we talked a little bit earlier about how your work is trying to find a more nuanced uh, perspective on aviation history. So what inspired you to write Flying Well Black? Yeah, uh, while, I was, while I was writing um, uh, uh, Weekend Pilots, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I did mention that I chose to to look at private aviation because that's where that's the only place uh, for for a couple of decades that there were any women, and that it was uh, I, I got the most insight into the culture of of aviation when there were potential conflicts between mm-hmm. the predominant culture and sort of outsiders. Right. And that's why uh, I chose private aviation because mm-hmm. that's where there were a handful of women. Mm-hmm. Well, while I was doing that, I realized that, well, most pilots uh, statistically are white. So what is the experience of, of African-American pilots in right. this culture? And that's when I uh, discovered that I just – didn't have any sources on oh, that, hmm. which in this case, I thought, well, you know, the, the silence that I'm hearing on this question mm-hmm. is is speaking volumes. Right, there just aren't yeah, many yeah. black pilots. So that's what came out of 
of weekend pilots. Mm. Um, I only have a handful of pages on the experiences of African-American pilots because that's all I found. Mm -hmm. After I finished that book, I wanted to go back and explore the question of race in flying because Mm. I just wasn't satisfied with what I'd found or what I hadn't found. And that's when I uh, discovered that I'd been looking in the wrong place. Um, Most of my sources for weekend pilots came from uh, magazines, uh, professional journals, sources that were by, for, and about pilots. Mm. And I've mentioned that most of these pilots were men, and the vast majority of these pilots were white. And so there just wasn't much about uh, uh, black pilots in these sources. But when I switched to a new set of sources, uh, for instance, Ebony Magazine, which uh, was uh, and is published, a magazine published with a predominantly uh, sort of middle-class African-American audience in mind, Mm -hmm. suddenly I discovered that aviation was uh, a big deal to this audience. And that once, especially once African-American pilots, former Air Force pilots, finally start getting jobs in aviation, even though it's just a handful, this is extremely important, really symbolic, and that there was a lot of press coverage in this uh, in this venue. I'd mm. just been looking in the wrong place. Mm. So that's how what I thought might be maybe a short scholarly article <laughs> about black pilots quickly turned into a whole book. Oh, really interesting. So you moved your source work from more of the professional like aviation things to the more cultural impact work and found exactly. answers there. Exactly. Huh. What unique insight on aviation history have you gained through your work focusing on the topic from the perspective of race? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think one of the things that really stands out, um, and it's not just on aviation history itself, but it's on history in general, uh, is the the deep-rooted persistence of not just um, racism, but also uh, stereotypes and expectations. Mm -hmm. So even when people uh, don't uh, think of themselves uh, or or, or view the world uh, through over-racist viewpoints, we still, and when I say we, I'm talking about members of society, still um, carry with us expectations about who does what. Um, And you know, sometimes I, I talk to people who, who admit to being surprised when they see somebody who's not a middle-aged white male uh, standing at the cockpit door when they're getting, you know, uh, on an airline or, or, mm. or, or, or getting off. Mm. Because that's what, what we have come to expect to be an airline pilot. The same thing is true in other aspects of society. Um, you interview uh, African-American doctors, for instance, and women uh, – uh, doctors, but especially women African-American doctors mm, yeah. or, or people of color, and they're routinely mistaken for being nurses or mm. even orderlies mm. uh, because of these uh, deeply embedded stereotypes we have in our society. And this, in turn, you know, has long-term effects yeah. um, on who uh, chooses to do what when mm. they grow up. Absolutely. Super interesting. So final question for this portion of the show. So I guess, again, just thinking about, is there any major theme or topic or takeaway that you have in mind for your audiences that are going to read this book? 
yeah. Uh, you know, it, related to the long-term persistence of the effects of stru structural racism, I think that the the other thing we, we, we really need to consider is that you know, in, um, in the news within the last couple of years, especially since the pandemic, and there's, there's now a, a shortage of airline pilots, mm, yeah. and so airlines have announced that this is a, a chance to increase the diversity of their pilot workforce, but, um, you know, which is great, absolutely great. But something to keep in mind is it's not a problem you can just solve instantly overnight. Right. Um, you know, these are, are deep-rooted, complex problems that really need to be addressed at all levels, really from, from school kids who uh, don't grow up picturing themselves mm. doing these STEM-type jobs mm -hmm. because they don't have highly visible uh, 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 role models mm -hmm. um, to say, well, I want to be like like that when I grow right. up, um, all the way to economic considerations. Uh, you know, uh, becoming a, a, an airline pilot is extremely expensive. It mm. used to be most people went through the military to do this. The military trains far fewer pilots mm. these days. So a lot of folks, including folks at, here at Auburn University, are uh, paying for uh, uh to, to uh, become commercial pilots right. out of their own pocket. Right. That's really expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, a college education plus flight training, That yeah. the flight training basically doubles the cost of what it hmm. costs to go to college for wow. four years. So uh, solving these problems, it's one thing to make announcements, but it's another thing to actually create sort of comprehensive uh, long-term programs to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Super cool. Well, I think that'll be a great takeaway and excited to see when the book comes out. Yes, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll see you afterwards for our final. Welcome back to It's All History to Me here live on Weagle 91.1 FM. If you're just joining us, we're joined here with Dr. Meyer and we're about to do our wrap-up thoughts. Um, we're ending with our favorite section of the trivia questions, of course. Um, so our first question today is, who was the first active U.S. president to fly in an airplane, and what was the type of aircraft in which he flew? Well, uh, so I'm going to start out my answer by re reiterating what I said at the beginning, which is that I'm not great with names and dates. <laughs> so <clears throat> before I prepare for a lecture, I have to do background research and, you know, walk in with a, a bunch of notes, as, as Sophia knows, so that <laughs> I can. Uh, so I would have answered. Well, I, I, I didn't know what the answer was. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I did know that uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, was the first former president to fly. Uh -huh. in, but he didn't fly while he was president, but uh, mm -hmm. afterwards, um, an adventurous fellow that he was he he uh took an airplane ride yeah. so so um i do know but only because i asked sophia <laughs> during the commercial break that it was uh, uh franklin d roosevelt was the first active president to fly in an airplane um but i don't know what kind of airplane he flew in mm. it was a boeing 314 flying boat or a pan am clipper Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So for our second trivia question here, Orville Wright was the first man to solo in an airplane. Do you know who the first woman was? All right. So <laughs> once again, um, I had to cheat on this one, and I asked Victoria. I think yeah. it was. Uh, but so the first woman who, whose name that I can remember, just sort of off, you know, if you catch me walking down the street or at the coffee shop or something, mm -hmm. uh, one of the earliest women pilots 
one of them is Harriet Quimby. Oh, okay, um, right. Uh, and who, who's famous because she became a air show performer, and then she died mm-hmm. uh, in in a very unfortunate accident, mm-hmm. um, as many early air for or air show performers uh, did, male mm, and yeah. female. But uh, so I guess the proper answer is Blanche Stewart Scott. Yeah, that's right. So we found that she is uh, was nicknamed the Flying Tomboy and soloed a Curtis airplane on September 2nd, 1910, and became a professional stunt pilot only two months later. Mm-hmm. And that was Sophia who found that answer, too. <laughs> and, and I think it's telling that her nickname was the Flying Tomboy, right? right? Yeah. Because this says something about even then, early on, mm-hmm. who was was supposed to be a pilot and who wasn't supposed to be a pilot. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely, absolutely. All right, we're going to do our last two questions. And our first one is, why is it important that we study history? Ah, yeah. So, um, you know, so people like to say those those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. Well, we have plenty of examples where people who should know better keep uh, Uh, (laughs) doing things that (laughs) – that, that those of us who study history are, are scratching our heads or, you know, mm. shaking our heads in dismay. Um, but I, I think that the reason to study history is to understand that uh, the world, first, this will sound like a sort of a cliched answer, but the world is a complicated place, and mm-hmm. there are lots of factors that come into play. We tend to like short, simple answers. That's, yeah. you know, what talking points work well in the media. Right. Um, and so we like short, simple answers. But answers are uh, to to issues both past and current are seldom that mm-hmm. way. So by studying history, we learn about unintended consequences. We learn about second and third order consequences from decisions that seemed straightforward at the time. Right. And if we really think about it, um, it can help us make you know what we learn from seeing uh, these case studies from the past can help us make more reasoned, better considered decisions uh, in our day to day day to day activities as yeah. well as as uh, really big uh, decisions that we may find ourselves making. Oh yeah. That's a great answer. And definitely cool to think about the way that history can help with decision-making processes and, like, kind of, I guess, finding comfort in the fact that there wasn't a clear answer in the past, even though it may have seemed like it from just a small reading or something like that. So very cool. Okay. And our last question of the morning, what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Mm, yeah. So um, I guess uh, – Part of my advice has to do with, um, you know, just because you're not good at names and dates doesn't mean you you aren't good at history. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, for me, history is much more than names and dates. It's right. about the analytical process. It's about the understanding part. But um, uh, another piece of advice I would have is if you're interested in studying history, first of all, it, that doesn't have to be your career. It can actually be a, a, a really uh, a good opening into other types of of careers mm. because the the writing skills, the research skills, and the critical thinking skills that you develop um, in that field can be really really useful in a wide variety of careers. If you do want a career in history, I love to teach at the university level, um, and I've met some really great 
uh, high school history teachers, unlike the high school history teacher that <laughs> I had once upon a time decades ago. Um, but there are other jobs in history as well, both, um, both in uh, the museum field mm-hmm. where your job is really you're still teaching, but you're teaching to a different audience. Instead of students in a classroom, you're teaching to the public who comes right. to visit to learn about the past and learn how the past uh, is connected to the present. Mm-hmm. And there are also jobs like the the job I had um, for the United States Air Force. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a surprising number of jobs for historians um, working for various government agencies. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of opportunities out there. And so I, I think that if you are, for instance, in, in college and you have any interest in history at all, talk to one or more history professors and ask them these questions. And... Again, just like doing research, you don't just rely on one source. You rely on multiple sources. Right. So don't just talk to one professor. Talk to several professors because they're going to give you different perspectives on that. Yeah, absolutely. Great points. I actually have one more question, and that's what's on the quiz today. <laughs> <laughs> Live on air. You'll know <laughs> in just a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. We're about to... So thank you so much, Dr. Meyer, for coming on. Um, Thank you so much to the history department and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz, for your support of our work. And thank you to the College of the Liberal Arts. Thank you to one of our researchers, Colby Axelberg, for helping us develop questions and write our little bios. And thank you to Weagle for letting us use our space. And thank you so much to our listeners. You're the reason we're almost at 100 listens, and I assume that we probably will. We're going to check and probably will be. Um, And we'll see you next week for our last show of the semester. See you then. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 7 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.